Hey everyone, I'm Sydney. I'm Anjana. And I'm Epsa, and welcome to Reimagined. So, the three of us recently graduated from college, and now we're navigating the world of post-grad experiences during a year that definitely has been quite the catalyst for change. This podcast is going to be a platform for young women to think critically about the society we currently live in and have meaningful discussions on creating a better future. Every Thursday, two of us will be interviewing women who are rethinking and reshaping our workplaces, politics, the environment, entire industries, or even just their own lives. So follow us as we navigate our own personal and professional journeys and meet some kick-ass women along the way. We hope their stories empower you to reimagine your own journey. Whatever you're passionate about, reimagine it. Hi, everyone. I'm Anjana. And I'm Epsa. And welcome to our first episode. Woo! Our very first podcast is centered around a question that's been at the forefront of a lot of conversations this year. And it is, how can we radically reimagine diversity, equity, and inclusion in workspaces? And this topic has been a buzzword for a while now, but what does that phrase even really mean? Honestly, yeah, like, what are people trying to get across? <laughs> in order to answer this question, we're bringing on Lindsay Siegel, who we met a few years ago at a women's development boot camp at Salesforce, where she worked on global executive leadership development in the DE&I space. Yeah, so Anjan and I both went to that boot camp, and we both met Lindsay two separate years, and she really had quite the impact on me. There's this one activity that we did that really allowed me to look at myself differently in the environments that I surround myself with. So it was this really cool sticky note activity. So she gave us 20 sticky notes, and we had to write a bunch of character traits about ourselves. And those could be very surface-level traits like student, college student, woman, to then things that are a little bit deeper that you may or may not share always, like first generation, uh, woman of color, person of color, just things of that sort. And then you slowly have to rip apart character traits that you feel like don't represent who you are to your core until you get down to three. So at the end of that activity, I had three character traits that were really intimate to me. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, this is what best represents me and what I see in myself. So I need to make sure my surroundings, my supporters and the environments that I'm in also see that in me as well. And that was just really empowering and super introspective. So we wanted to bring her back on the podcast because she's back at Salesforce as a talent partner. And she is actively driving change in the tech industry to just become more diverse and an equitable workspace. Yeah, EFSA has a much better memory than I do, but I don't remember the specific activity I did with Lindsay, but I do distinctly remember crying. (laughs) I I cry too, honestly. As I always do. So she's going to be touching on a couple different topics, and we had this interview with her just about a month ago, and throughout our conversations, we talked about reconsidering who we're designing tech for how to address the network gap and the supposed pipeline problem. And most importantly, why these DE&I initiatives just point blank aren't working. Exactly. So what we're discussing isn't new. I mean, in fact, these are things that have been happening for quite some time, but we're really excited to chat with Lindsay and unpack what she thinks needs to happen to create radical change. Okay. Well, to get started, Lindsay, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We know you graduated from Chico in 2013 um, and have since held various different roles at different companies. What has your career been like so far? 
Mm, my career, what does it look like so far? Um, it's been exhilarating. It's been exhausting, um, but fruitful. And I, I think the reason why that has been the case is I've had many roles in talent management and I've been fortunate enough to get different experiences in that spectrum of talent management. So I've been in the recruiting space. I've been in executive leadership development, and now I'm really in fostering internal talent at the underbelly of all of those things. Diversity, equity, inclusion really play a role. Um, but I, I feel quite fortunate to be in the tech space, uh, fortunate to work on interesting problems and to get paid a luxurious salary to do it. Um, <laughs> so it's been fun. That is awesome. That's awesome. Could you, since you, you know, have been in the tech space and you've definitely um, dipped your toes in different areas of talent internally, could you, do you mind sharing a, like a little story or experience uh, maybe at Chico or post Chico in one of your first jobs that really made you realize you wanted to pursue a career in creating a more diverse space in tech? And then could you touch on what you love most about your role today? Yeah. So I never thought I'd be in tech mm -hmm. at all. Um, at Chico, I was there for five years and I studied lots of things. I worked full time and I was also in a bunch of clubs. But uh, my senior year, I was really adamant on going into the continuing on in the social justice space, social welfare, mm -hmm. continuing on in, in activism work. And my plan was to move to Southeast Asia, specifically Burma, to work with refugees. Wow. Um, but student loans are real, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And my family also convinced me and said, Lindsay, yes, you're learning about this, but A, you don't know the culture, B, you don't know the language. And while it's great to have this view into life, it doesn't always work out this way. Essentially, you can't go save people. You're not a savior. And it's a very Western mindset to mm -hmm, have. Right. So I had student loans and I walked into a recruiting agency. Meanwhile, I'm interviewing with the ACLU, like Vice News was very cool to me. And I remember interviewing and they said in that interview, like, we'd like to hire you. And I saw the offer and I was like, huh, that is more money than I thought that I would retire with. Um, the first poll was like, okay, I just, I have a job, I have healthcare, uh, I'll have money. Maybe I can do this for a little bit. I was also in a long-term relationship and that individual wanted to go to law school. So for me, it was like, maybe I can start saving money to help them. Like, I'll just try this out, see how it goes. Um, but shortly after I, it clicked for me and it, I realized that technology goes beyond social media, like Facebook, it goes beyond us turning on Netflix, like technology permeates our mm -hmm. existence, or at least my existence, I should say. And that's when I was like, wow, I think I should have a, a space in this game. Mm -hmm. um, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, and when we first met, goodness, years ago, um, I had the opportunity to essentially own the uh, inclusion workshop at Salesforce. And it was a four hour workshop designed for leaders to go through, to learn about what it means to be an inclusive leader. Right. I then had the, the opportunity to work with my, my peers and really ensure that diversity and inclusion were built into 
all programs at the executive level. Um, so it was amazing. It was amazing. But then I left and I went to Pivotal, which was acquired by VMware, but I owned the leadership development function mm -hmm. there. Um, and for me, it was like I owned leadership programs, but I baked in diversity. Like I, I was like, let's ensure that there are 50% women or people of color in these trainings. Let's ensure that there are folks globally represented in these trainings. Um, and now that I'm back at Salesforce, I'm kind of bringing together that old world that I used to do of like recruiting mixed with the world of leadership development, mixed with the intentional diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. So I feel like I'm now in a role that blends everything I've done in the past. That's awesome. Um, and I, I, yeah, yeah. The most interesting thing I'd say though is, you know, I've never actually been in a titled or function that is called DEI. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've never been in the office of equality. I've, I've never done that. I exist in the world of human right. resources or people. So. It's really about the mindset, not the role title, right? And it's like, we just need more people like you who know that to go look in different places and to bring in different perspectives in a, in just like any role, right? Whether it's recruitment or marketing or... Yes, that is the key. So many people are like, I want to do this type of work. And I'm like, you don't have to be at all with a title around this. Actually, mm -hmm. actually we need you in the business. We need you bringing this lens to how we build products into right. how we interact with customers into how we sell the customers. Like we need this lens throughout the business and everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. We need you to take the bias out of hiring algorithms. Like when, you know, you're using software that helps you recruit, like you need that mindset in every role in tech, all the intersections. Um, and you're working on a project right now that, bridges Black, Latinx, and Indigenous U.S.-based talent to internal career opportunities, resources, programs, and executive sponsors. What can you tell us about this project that you're working on? Yeah. Oh, so this, this project um, holds near and dear to my heart. Um, and really, it comes from this place, first and foremost, of questioning who we're designing for, who are we centering programs around. And I think historically in organizations, um, we see programs that are centered around folks who've been deemed high potentials, right? And ironically, so often when we look at the landscape of who's defined as high potential, ironically, sometimes people look the same, right? Um, programs are also created for managers, right? But we know when we look at managers, oftentimes who's getting promoted to be a manager and who's not getting promoted to be a manager, who's deemed qualified or capable. So the intention behind this program design was to center it around folks who identify as Black, Latinx, or Indigenous with the sole intention that, you know, we are providing access along the talent management spectrum. So I'll give some examples. One is we know this community and this population, we're already less likely to be in technology, right? But we're, we're less likely to have access to certain things like resources, programs, tools. So the real, the real goal here is to provide this community with those goals, with, with lessons on how to play this game. What, um, what do you mean by that? 
A game. Um, I use game so often. <laughs> corporate America. Exactly. For corporate America. It's gamified. Um, it's gamified, right? Mm-hmm. I like to think that in all institutions, in all cultures, really, that there are rules, right? Mm-hmm. And the people define the rules. And this may be because I studied sociology, so this is really where the language is coming from. But uh, tech was created with certain rules, and we have to think about who historically was in the room and who is now in the room. Some of those rules need to be rewritten. So what I mean mm-hmm. by this game is uh, some existing rules are still in place that don't really benefit everyone. And when I'm saying everyone, sometimes they don't benefit Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other people of color. Mm-hmm. They really need to uphold, um, you know, white men in spaces. Mm-hmm. Could you describe those rules, but in like different segments of milestones in terms of like, because I feel like pursuing a role at a company like this, it doesn't just start from college, it's almost before. So could you kind of describe those rules in like high school and then college and then post-grad and how you would describe that, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, so I'll start at the macro level. Be yes. a poor center out of Oakland. Um, I would encourage everyone to check out. They've been doing the work and I'll define the work later on, but they've been doing the work and it's a community of folks who care about creating a more, just a more diverse and a more inclusive tech ecosystem. And a few years ago, they did a study and it's called the leaky pipeline and they have a framework. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that if we examine pre K through 12, higher education, tech workforce and entrepreneurship and venture capital, we'll find that there's all these leaky, leaky pipelines essentially happening. Right. Yeah. An example would be, um, for folks who don't necessarily uh, go to a higher ed institution for whatever reason, and I don't think we have to double click into that today of the issues and problems with with college and who has access and who doesn't. Right, we could unpack for days about that. For days, that's right. <laughs> Literally, yeah. But an example of a leaky pipeline would be uh, we have folks who go the non traditional route and go to boot camps, right? Mm-hmm. And these folks come out of these boot camps knowing how to speak the languages that build these technologies. However, for some organizations and for some people, there's still a stigma of going that route versus the higher ed traditional college route. Um, And so the rules, the rewriting the rules would be like, hey, no, someone is fully deemed capable and qualified who goes to a boot camp. And I would even imagine and reimagine if we push that further, someone who doesn't go to a boot camp, someone who doesn't go to a higher ed institution is deemed qualified, capable, and has just as much potential as someone who goes to a boot camp or university. So all of it, in my mind, um, will be flipped. It it has to be flipped. Um, And that's what I'm so passionate about reimagining. That's awesome. Do you consider then, like, I know a couple months ago, um, Google announced that they were offering three, I don't know, three or six month courses on Coursera Mm -hmm. for like project management, New York's research. And they said that recruiters at Google would now consider that um, at the same level as a four year bachelor's degree. So is that what you mean by like rewriting the rules? Yes. Yes. And that that's the kind of stuff where, I mean, it's imperative that we go that route. 
We, mm-hmm. If we don't, we're just going to create a more in a, an unequal world and we're going to have issues that impact the world at a much greater scale when it comes to inequality. So I, I'm like, yes, Google. And we're also <laughs> seeing some organizations say, like, let's do away with four-year degrees. Mm-hmm. Let's really not focus on EQ, but, or I'm sorry, let's not focus on IQ or intelligence. Let's mm-hmm. really focus on emotional intelligence. Right. So, right. That's the direction. Awesome. Absolutely. That was some research that we were figuring out and like finding out about. But in terms of that, I mean, I was talking to Anjan about how it is so beneficial and useful that there are other paths, but kind of what you mentioned, like people that go the non-traditional route with boot camps, when they enter the workforce, they still aren't valued. So with this shift, with these certificates, how can workforces now with positions like yours really ensure the people that have certificates are being seen in the same light as those who went to a four-year degree. Yeah, that's where, that's the mindset shift that needs to happen at the top. Yeah. So I think while I sit in a pool of optimism, like, yes, technology, it, it will change. It has to change. Yeah, right. Off of this other side of me, that's like, the number has not changed. Like there are still only like on average 2.5% of black folks in tech. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, Staring at myself, being like, okay, I'm one of those people. But this number has been a constant for years. And as much money as all of these organizations have put behind all of these efforts, um, we haven't seen a change. Right. So something's mm-hmm. not working. Right, right, right. And we'll touch on that later. And that's so important. Um, when we talk, Lindsay, you mentioned something you or you yourself are working on is answering this question of who are we designing tech for? Um, and with emergence of human-centered design thinking, I don't know if emergence is the right word, but with human, human-centered design thinking, how do we start creating spaces for marginalized groups into the design process? Oof, yeah, I, I think, you know, so often in the conversation of activism and allyship, the conversation has been around, like, there are people who've been doing the work Uh, go to them to find the answers. And I think that same idea applies to tech. There are people who haven't necessarily held diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, roles, but they've been fighting for this work. They've been doing the work. They've been going from organization to organization. And in my head, like I have so many friends and mentors and advisors of my own that are popping up who who've been fighting in this space for so long. Right. However, it, it's, it's interesting now because you have all these folks who are, you know, really early on in their journey wanting to get into this work and they're not looking to those who've been doing the work for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that, that's going to not create change. That's just going to set us back more. And that's, in my mind, just performative allyship. Like, take a back seat, let those who've been doing the work really design the work. So that's one component. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the second component would be, just as you mentioned, it's really around recentering who we're designing for. Uh, that means redefining who's capable, who's qualified, what potential means. And then thirdly, I would, I mean... I would really say that specifically for Black, Latinx, and Indigenous, or wherever the hotspot is in your organization, like just really understanding that we're human too. 
And I know that's a whole nother alley and like path of going like, what? We're human too. But um, I think a lot of these issues are rooted in white supremacy. They're rooted in how the United States was formed. And so often we don't want to have the conversation that connects technology to capitalism, to globalization and oppression. And they're all interconnected, right? So So we've been talking a lot about just tech and how it's so integral to our everyday lives and we want to make it more inclusive for all. So despite this giant push throughout these years, continual push, social media pushes um, for large DE&I initiatives at really large tech companies, the stats are still lacking or they're changing, but ever so slightly. Like um, the percent of black hires overall rose only by 0.7% at Google in 2018, 0.1% at Microsoft in 2018, and 0.3% at Facebook in 2019. So from doing all these DE&I initiatives, implementing bias trainings, in your opinion, like why aren't these initiatives working and what really has to change from the higher up? Yeah, you know, I I think these aren't working because, um, you know, so often there isn't a integrated approach. And what I mean by that is I think Mm -hmm. what I've seen Um, throughout the Valley is typically it's, okay, this is a recruiting problem. Recruiters go out and hire folks, right? And so all attention gets focused on recruiting. Mm -hmm. Maybe budget goes in that direction. Then the number's not hit and it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, recruiting, right? Meanwhile, there's not a lot of focus on those who are actually already in the organization who possibly aren't getting attention when it comes to their career development. They're not getting equal access at some organizations. They're not getting equal pay. And so that those folks then leave and some folks in the community leave tech for good, because let's be honest, it is exhausting on a day-to-day basis. So I think the issue is there isn't one integrated strategy happening at a lot of organizations Um, I think there's been a mass surge of head of DEI and that's a whole nother topic. I think it's amazing. And I have so many amazing friends who are in these positions. Um, however, so often they are spending so much time just trying to influence their peers, uh, on the value that DEI brings to the workplace. So they're not only having to create initiatives, they're having to convince people that it's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so often if something doesn't go uh, right or the impact isn't seen in quantitative numbers, they're then blamed. So what needs to happen in my mind is uh, if you're in the C-suite and you're not doing anything about it, then that's a problem. If you are a level three, like three removed away from the CEO, aren't doing anything about it, then that's a problem. If you are a people manager and you're not doing anything about it, that's a problem. So you have all these people who are in positions of hiring and firing. And Mm -hmm. if they're not doing anything about it, then yeah. You're so right. I feel like people truly just view it as a recruiting pipeline. Like they just blame it on the recruiters. And I feel like that's what those people that you said, like in the C-suite, three levels above or below, they just view, oh, that's just like a recruiting problem. Like I'm focused on bettering the company, blah, 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 blah. 
they have that. And then what you're saying with people that are really influencing and trying to drive this change, I, with like at the workplace and within schools, I feel like the students and peers that I see take on this change are students of color that are balancing a workload and then trying to drive this. Just like it's so much to advocate for yourself while trying to survive. It's so much. I just can't imagine. Yeah. Exhausting. I mean, it's already enough going into a a work environment where uh, you don't see yourself represented. Like you may be the only on your team. Mm -hmm. Then comes what's going on in society and having Mm -hmm. to deal with that. Then comes having to educate possibly your manager, your team on what's going on because, Mm -hmm. you know, performative allyship. I really want to learn. So get emotionally exhausted and educate me. So, yeah, it's exhausting, right, to be um, a person of color, for me specifically to be black in in tech. it's, It's fun. I'd say it's fun. And I know I started the conversation out like that, but. I am in tech for one purpose to like a really a big soul purpose. And that is it's imperative that tech shifts, uh, shifts the direction that they're on uh, for the sake of humanity. So absolutely. And I feel like right. it has to start with tech. So other organizations, schools can follow the lead because tech really, it drives change positive or negative, And that needs to happen. Otherwise people are just going to be like, Oh, Let's play the blame game and find someone else to do the work. Yep. So. Um, you kind of mentioned this already, but I do want to touch a little deeper on the pipeline problem, quote unquote, pipeline pro- mm-hmm. problem. Um, I think companies really love to say that, you know, they really want to hire more minorities. Um, there just aren't enough of them that meet the qualifications. So, what are your thoughts on that whole thing and how can we fix it? And what, like, what are the real underlying problems? Yeah. Like, can you touch on like also like target schools and that topic, if that integrates into Mm -hmm. it as well? Target schools. Where are, where are these people? They don't exist. They're unicorns. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? We can't find more people of color at Yale. (laughs) Right. When I hear that, my brain is so boggled, but then I, I'm really rooted and, I had to really remind myself that, okay, Lindsay, I mean, not not because you are black, but you just happen to know people who aren't like you. I think it's unfortunate for those who are not connected to communities outside of, uh, you know, those that they see in the mirror. It's mind-boggling, right. actually. And it's fascinating when you have conversations with people who are like, you know, I actually, my entire network is of white folks and they don't go beyond that network um, because it gets me thinking of, wow, what a life to live. I mean, I, right. You could call it nice. You could call it comfort, but then it's also like, wow. Have you ever had that type of food? Like outside of a four star resort out of that third uh, out of that country that you visited to, like um, it's, it boggles my brain. And so when I hear those things, like, where are these people? I'm like, wow, you really have no idea how to look and how mm-hmm. have you gotten this far up and this far in your life without having to mm-hmm. look mm-hmm. right across the street. So um, a big thing here is just being 
able to connect with people who are different. And I think that's what's missing. The second abstraction would be not only being able to connect with people, but being able to honestly just have a conversation as human to human. And the third abstraction would be like, okay, human, we're talking to each other. Like I see massive potential in you. Right. Yeah. And how that's connected to target schools. I think, you know, every, I don't want to say every organization, but a lot of organizations have their, their lists of we're going to go to these five schools. That's where we're going to invest. And that's who we're going to recruit from. And oftentimes that list is representative of whoever's leading the organization, right? There's some type of influence there. It's what's this legacy? Who's this club? What's this network? And uh, it's, it's, yeah, I just, it's fascinating that we don't think like, oh, maybe someone that we don't have here would be best at the table. It, it's really- Everything you're saying is so interconnected. Yeah. Like with the whole um, people not having anyone outside their network, not looking across the street. That's like not looking across a different school, a different organization. And then, wow, yeah, it's all. And then people from, like what you said earlier, people in those VP positions, they make those decisions. And I'm sure those are the ones that are picking the schools. Yeah. I mean, it's we've, we've seen so many schools over the past few years really invest in HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, to find black talent, um, which is great. It, it mm-hmm. needs to happen. Yeah. However, like we are, he- I'm here in Oakland and... A lot of these companies are here in the Valley. However, these organizations aren't connected to like black student union at Stanford or Berkeley. Right. I'm like, there are people at these schools who exist too. Mm -hmm. The idea of like, Oh, there are, there's that type of person at Berkeley or Cal and CS majors. Like, uh, you know, there's the organization I met you both through. Like that's talent. That's women, you know, like, powerful however a lot of organizations just don't think right right it is really not just on you know those recruiters to go out of their way to find those organizations at these schools but on each of us even when we enter the workforce as we go through our careers to really step out of our comfort zone and try to find a bigger network of of people that are different and um like you said like you have potential and finding a way to empower those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so important because it really is on all of us. Um, so thank you for mentioning that. It is. Oh yeah. I was just going to say a comment. Um, what you said about like saying, I see potential in you words like that literally could, if someone told me that that pushes me, motivates me for like a year. Like people forget. <laughs> it, it really does. I really, yes. words of affirmation is my love language. So yeah. like, Stuff like that when it is when people don't hear that and they just feel discouraged. But if people like you or people lend that helping hand and say that, like that works wonders and it means a lot. Right. So I think that's also something small that people could start doing um, at any capacity. I so that totally reminded me. I read somewhere um, imposter syndrome. That's really only felt by people who don't feel like they have a space in wherever they're working or anything along those lines. And it's like all you really need is someone who's, you know, higher up or someone with you to like take the time to say, no, you are doing a great job. Because like a lot of people who don't feel like they have space in these tech companies, if they just get that reassurance, that's already such a huge 
yeah. powerful move. Words, but yeah, powerful. words great. are powerful. Words are powerful. Um, yeah. So what I wanted to touch on mm-hmm. is like a recent event that I saw pop up on my LinkedIn feed. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Lindsay, but there, so I think it was a week or two ago, um, a Netflix employee um, who had only two years of engineering experience as opposed to supposedly there's a standard of five years to be an um, engineering in Netflix or something. And yeah, there was someone posted on some thread that Netflix was lowering its standards um, by hiring this black woman who's only had two years of engineering at Walmart. I think that really touches on this like broader question, like, Let's say I'm someone in the majority, read white men. Um, and I'm like, no, you know, privilege doesn't exist. I work really hard to get to where I am today. You know, why should someone who is less qualified take my position? How, how do you, I assume you get a lot of questions like this. I mean, I'm, I'm just making an assumption, but I feel that I have conversations like that all the time. How do you mm-hmm. handle a question like that? Yeah, so when it comes to this story, it is, a story that is, is that line, a tale as old as time, right? This person isn't qualified because of this specific reason. And in this circumstance, it comes down to years, right? Because we can quantify right. learning in years. If you've done a year of this, mm-hmm. then you're at this level, which is insane. It's actually insane in my mind. And when I think right. about those who, in, in this circumstance that you painted, which I've seen so many times, um, I think it's important to look at distance traveled. And what I mean by that is uh, based on like how you come out of the womb and how you are born and the life that you live, uh, learnings will come from that. So if you are a black woman by the age of two or three, you know, you are a a black girl. If you grow up in a certain place, you know, where you're growing up, basically you learn the boundaries. You learn what society is deemed as of, of you're capable of what you can do, Mm -hmm. how long you'll be on this planet, the likelihood of what will happen to you in childbirth. Like we all have seen these insane stats that are disproportionate. Yeah. certain people so when someone is like oh this person only has two years of that experience it's like mm-hmm. they have a lifetime of resiliency they have a lifetime of um learnings from being oppressed that no amount of coding <laughs> no <amount laughs> of engineering can teach someone and at the end of the day like this really comes down to like human Mm -hmm. skills versus technical skills. There's this person by the name of uh, Kent Beck who wrote the agile manifesto years ago, which really shifted technology and from waterfall to agile. And when I was at pivotal, I was my, like my eyes flew open because I was finally reading things on lean and agile. And there was this quote Kent Beck said, I believe now maybe at Gusto. So, hey, Ken, if you're listening, um, <laughs> he basically said something along the lines of every, pop, every problem is a people problem. It's not a technology problem. Right. Uh, so in this case, right, like, 
yeah, humans go through things and people learn from that. And it boggles mm-hmm. my brain when someone says this person doesn't have six more months or a year's worth of engineering experience when they have a lifetime of experience of dealing with uh, bullshit. <laughs> so true. And I think my blank. Yeah. I, what I really, a week later, I think one of um, another employee in Netflix, uh, he was a great ally and um, made a LinkedIn post. Uh, he was saying like, it's interesting that when this person is, wrote that post, he assumed instead, like instead of assuming, wow, like two years, only two years of experience, she must be excellent. She must be so great at what she's doing that they hired someone with only two years of experience. Like instead of thinking that he automatically thought a black engineer, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. that, like, I can't believe they lowered their standards to hire this black engineer. And I thought that was a really great post to make, um, in support of this woman and really, you know, change that mindset. Um, yeah, that's, you're so right. There's, they have people of color and especially black, um, people, indigenous, uh, Latinx have years and years of resiliency putting up with bullshit. And that's more than two years of coding. (laughs) More than any schooling, that's stuff you can't teach. You learn through life. So people need to realize that. Yeah. Right. And I should call out that while it was a Netflix thing, like this, it Mm -hmm. happens at all companies. Like years ago, Google and the Google manifesto that dropped that basically, you know, like these things pop up and sometimes there are artifacts that are created. Sometimes it's just rumblings behind closed doors, but it's definitely an obstacle Mm -hmm. and it's real. And that's, um, throughout yeah. the culture. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And if you don't see it in a manifesto, people are definitely thinking it. Spot right. on. Yeah. Spot on. It shows up in who's getting hired and who's not, and it shows up why we still have terrible statistics. Yeah. it History just yep. keeps repeating itself. Every two years, something pops up, and it's like, didn't we just experience that? How have we not learned, grown? It's the cycle. Didn't we just go over this? Like... <laughs> A year ago, why are we this, didn't this just pop up? Yeah, yeah. it is. Right. Hasn't this been happening since this country was formed? Since the dawn of time, right. actually. <laughs> this uh, it, it keeps things are the, the same themes yeah. that we yeah, and that's, years ago are prevalent today. And that's where it gets exhausting because it's like, oh my god, didn't you just learn this? Hasn't this seeped into your head? Yeah. Well. <laughs> to shift gears just a little bit um, from talking about that story. And Anjana, I really liked um, you sharing that additional perspective from someone else. I think it's really nice to like, mm-hmm. look at it from that way. Um, but Lindsay, do you, with your years of experience in your field, do you have like a specific success story about an individual that you helped at work or someone from an underrepresented background that you got you like got them into tech or you kind of just made them feel valued other than us <laughs> from one of the programs other than us right now but some <laughs> someone from the programs you've built that you've just been able to help them find their potential you know I yes and the way I'll answer this question is um it's from a unique lens and the lens mm-hmm. from the community is small like the community of uh, black, Latinx, indigenous folks, it's small. And a lot of us, we are interconnected. And so I guess when it comes to a success story for an individual, 
I'll, I'll take it and deconstruct it from a community perspective. And what I what I'd say, I've had sponsors, I've had advocates, I've had allies, I've had mentors, people in the community who've amplified me, and. I think we just keep that going. I'm like, I give and then I get, and then I get, then I give. And uh-huh. I think all tides need, like everyone in the, this boat, we need to rise together in order there to actually, in order for there to be success. Um, uh-huh. Yes. I could say, yes, I've helped people get jobs. Yes. I, I, I mentor. Yes. I sponsor. Yes. I do those things, but I recognize that if it wasn't for the folks who are on a daily basis doing that for me, I wouldn't have the voice. I wouldn't have the seat at the table. I wouldn't, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have it. So it's a, it's a gnarly feedback loop of community. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that love that we have for each other, like that's what needs to be scaled, not just in tech, but like, that's the formula. Like that, that's what community is. That's what, um, that's what family does for each other. And so I'm so appreciative of those in the community who do it for me. I love that. Oh, I love that. I think that holds deep because like whenever there's someone in my own community who like gets this new job or gets this new success, I almost like, I'm so proud of them and I'm feeding off their energy just because I know how hard it is. And then that just kind of motivates me and inspires me too. It's kind of like this one quote that you are the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. So within that community, having that love and manifesting that, I think that that speaks volumes. And I'm sure you've had so many people do that for you. And then you just feel this urge to do it for others as well. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So to sum it all up, um, in your own words, what what do you believe needs to radically change in the way tech leadership approaches DEI in order to for us to actually progress as a society and see tangible change? I know we've touched on it briefly, but how would you sum it up? Oof, a big one. This, no, this is good. Um, I'd say if you are a people leader or an executive leader now and you aren't doing the work to understand what's going on in the world, you are not only doing yourself a disservice, but you're doing your organization. You're doing, you're doing a disservice to a lot of people. (laughs) Um, I think this next generation who, even those who are just entering the workforce, like even the both of you, you have different expectations of what it means to be a leader and um, at this point, uh, especially as we, you know, as we reimagine what it looks like after COVID, after the election, I, I pray and I'm hopeful that the world looks different. But organizations will need to, to you know, we'll need to make sure that we're going in that direction, too, in order to survive. So what I ask from leaders is get a coach. Uh, get a therapist, um, have tough conversations, but yeah, do, do the work that's necessary for human advancement. Absolutely. And I think our generation will definitely play a role. I think our shift, I'm sure Anjanette, we've talked about this. I think a lot of us really are just focusing on elevating the people around us 
And it's, it's less like for me, it's like less of how can I be the best? And it's more of how can we be the best? And I think that's the mindset shift that's happening recently. And I'm, again, I know change takes a while, but I think with Gen Z and with younger millennials and every people, people with this mindset, I think obviously a positive, optimistic mindset, but I really think that's the direction we're going and hopefully good will come out of it. It's happening. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully. Let's manifest. <laughs> you can listen to our podcasts weekly on Spotify or Apple Music and find our blog at thereimaginedpodcast.com. Follow our Instagram and LinkedIn at the Reimagined Podcast to stay up to date on all the things we're reimagining.